Proverbs 24, verses 23 to 34. I'll read those and then I'll give some more context. These things also belong to the wise. It is not good to show partiality in judgment. He who says to the wicked, You are righteous, him the people will curse. Nations will abhor him. But those who rebuke the wicked will be but those who rebuke the wicked will have delight, and a good blessing will come upon them. He who gives a right answer kisses the lips. Prepare your outside work. Make it fit for yourself in the field, and afterward build your house. Do not be a witness against your neighbor without cause, for would you deceive with your lips? Do not say, I will do to him just as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. I went by the field of the lazy man, and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding. And there it was, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I considered it well. I looked on it and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. So shall your poverty come like a prowler, and your need like an armed man. You may be seated. Alright, so, collection one, nine chapters long. It's for the child, it's for the youth. Chapters one through nine. We're given the purpose statement of the book and the thesis of the book there, which we haven't talked about for a bit, so I'd like to reread them to remind you. Remember, the purpose statement is to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of success, judgment, and equity. Okay, so let's, let's remind ourselves what that means. Remember, hokmah is wisdom. It's the knowledge of the good and of the means to the good. So we know that the good is God, right? And so if we know God, we know the good. We know the highest good, the definition of what's good. And the law of God teaches us how to grow in the knowledge of God, how to grow in possessing God. So as we seek to apply the law and live in a way that is the good life, that life is a, design, is a life designed to deepen in insight. That's what the law does. It tells you how to live a life that will help you to deepen your insight. And so it is the structure of a life that is a life for gaining wisdom that the law teaches us about. So to know wisdom and instruction. Remember, instruction is masar. The masar is discipline. It's, it's the training. So to know wisdom and to know the training to perceive the words of understanding. Right? This, this perception of the words of understanding is you can hear people talk, and if one person's talking and another person's talking, you go, Who's right? I don't know. You see the world in high definition when you have the instruction of the Word of God. You can go, This is the words of foolishness, and here are the words of wisdom. These are the words of understanding. You have the capacity to differentiate. You can perceive which words are the words of understanding. It's like walking around and having red letters 
wherever there's understanding, as opposed to black letters elsewhere. You're able to see which ones are the words of understanding. To receive instruction of success. To receive instruction of success. Instruction, again, Masar, the training. And then we have of success, justice, and equity. Okay, so success here, the word Haskell, there's a danger. This word Haskell throughout the book of Proverbs, sometimes it's translated as wisdom, which is why some people have the stupid definition of wisdom. And this is, I'm labeling it stupid because I need you to remember that it's stupid. Here's the stupid definition of wisdom. Wisdom is, this is the stupid definition, wisdom is knowledge applied. Okay? What that means is wisdom is works. That's what that means. Wisdom is works. So when somebody tells you that wisdom is knowledge applied, what they're telling you is that wisdom is works. Okay, now, that is extremely subversive. Here's why it's subversive. Is saving faith wisdom? If you have wisdom, do you have saving faith? If you have saving faith, do you have wisdom? If you make wisdom into knowledge applied, you've made wisdom into works, you've made faith into works. This is a relatively short run to destroying the gospel. Okay? Wisdom is not knowledge applied. Haskell is. Haskell is. Haskell is success or skill. It's very important to not equate skill with wisdom. (coughs) Skill is about art. It's about making things. It's about doing things. Wisdom allows you to know what's worth making. Wisdom allows you to know what's worth doing. And it lets you know the just or righteous ways to do it. But skill is not a matter of knowledge. Skill is a matter of practice and habituation and ability. We don't ride bikes because we know how to ride bikes. We ride bikes because we have the skill to ride bikes. You can give somebody a book explaining the physics of riding a bike and tell them with instructions about how it functions and you can put them on there and they will fall on their face. Kids figure out how to ride bikes and they have no idea what's happening. They have the Haskell. They don't have the doctrine of the physics of bike riding. When people try to make those things the same or when they undermine the value of wisdom, wisdom's doctrine, its words, its propositions, it matters. But it's not skill. Now, wisdom helps you to understand how to get skill and wisdom tells you practices that will encourage skill. So the training of skill and success is a part of what wisdom sets you up for. Justice is a matter of doctrine. It's about right choices. And judgment, or right choices, (coughs) and equity about order and beauty. These are the things that 
wisdom sets you up for, being able to tell the difference between them. So then there's the thesis. That's what the book's for. Then there's the thesis. And this thesis is the wisdom statement that's built upon for the rest of the book. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So in other words, a right definition of God that helps you to understand that we deserve the judgment of God is the basis upon which you can build a doctrine of knowledge. If you don't have an eternal God with an eternal mind who is the truth, there's no basis for eternal truth. Like the every thought of truth, if that thought of truth is unchanging, if the truth itself is unchanging, it's an eternal thought. So the idea of eternal words, eternal logos, eternal doctrine depends upon a mind that is eternal. So the building of knowledge depends upon a right doctrine of God and depends upon a recognition of the right God. So presenting a definition of God and presenting the idea that truth itself is eternal, is propositional, it exists in an eternal mind, those are preconditions for being able to build a philosophy that is stable. So the metaphysic of God, who God is, is something that you have to lay out for people so that they can understand why divine revelation is reliable. It's an assertion of divine revelation, and it's an assertion of that information and how you show it's necessary. And the denial of it is self-refuting. So if somebody denies that there's an eternal mind that knows everything, you can show, you can deconstruct and make it so that there's a, a, an absurdity to the alternative claim. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. And the fool, we're told, is the one who denies God. The fool is the one who does not fear the Lord. And so there's a laying out of that. The rest of the book lays those things out. It shows the beginning of knowledge is in the fear of the Lord. And it shows that fools despise wisdom, hokmah, and instruction, musar. So we have these things. If you're wise, you're going to love wisdom and you're going to love instruction. If you're a fool, you're going to hate wisdom and you're going to hate instruction. And we're also taught that God is the eternal wisdom. And so we have this hatred of God or love of God. Those things coincide with wisdom or foolishness as well. And so that, that's the thesis. And the book is an unpacking of how the fear of the, God, of, of the Lord gives more knowledge and it's an unpacking of how foolishness is a hatred of wisdom and of Musar instruction. So the first part of the book is laid out simply for us, chapters 1 through 9, in a way that's designed to be easy to follow and so I have laid out there for you the chiasm of the book, the structure of it. We were given the introduction of the first seven verses We have wisdom rebuking the simple to stop being simple and become wise. 
Um, sorry, I skipped something. Sorry, we, ha we have section A, the father invites to gain wisdom, and you have a gang versus the household. So there's this temptation for the young as opposed to giving their strength to building up the household and focusing on honoring their parents to instead care about their peers and to seek the approval of their peers. So you have the call, the wise, <coughs> the wise will heed the call of the father to focus on the household and care more about the parents' approval than about the peer approval. The gang calls for the peer approval and has this lie about it. Here's the funny thing, right? As kids, we think our friends are the most important people in the world and their opinion really matters. And then you grow up and you don't interact very much with those people anymore. But you still have to deal with your parents. Now, that short-sighted desire for the gang's invitation is based upon this lie that, oh, look, you can share all the good stuff with us. And the father's going, look, when I die, you're going to get everything. I'm going to give you some of it before I die. I'm going to help to set you up to be able to run the thing. Help me to build this thing. You're going to get it all. Right? That's the long-term nature of it. Now, you go to the very end, A, look, chapter 9, right? Wisdom invites, that sort of goes with the Father's invitation, and folly invites. So, the Father and the gang are compared to wisdom and folly. Now, we get to B, wisdom rebukes the simple. He's saying, stop being simple, be wise. Get the difference between understanding and foolishness. And chapter 8, you have the woman wisdom, is giving an invitation and it goes out and it gives more detail about it and there's all this figurative language. C, we had the father warns against evil men and against the harlot. That happens in chapter 2 and then in chapter 7 we have the woman folly being warned against. So evil men and harlot women, those are the people who are competing for the loyalty of the young, the simple. When the father is trying to protect from the fools and from the, the harlotry. So D, the father commands that teaching be heeded, and then the father warns against the unchaste woman. So there's this warning again about the disloyalty. So you see the way in which the gang, the young men, the foolish men, and the unchaste woman, the harlot, that's all being warned against over and over again. There's this, here are the things that will attract your affections that are deception, that are short-term, that are that are dangerous for you. And so this is an interpretive grid for the world, for the young. Because these are the temptations of the young. Now, when you go into collection two, we have the 375 Proverbs of Solomon. There's a ton of stuff in there. 375 Proverbs. Right? And we're broke, it broke it out at the time into big kind of chunks. Sort of. There's a ton of stuff in there. And so it's, it's giving a perspective of the world where it's, it's trying to label a bunch of things and help you to be able to move into, you've got to govern yourself in the world. So it's just giving all of these categories, all of these labels, helping to think things through. But it's, it's for a man who's beginning to govern himself. Now, Collection 3 is an effort to capture those into less heads of doctrine. So you've got 30 sayings of the wise that are meant to capture those 375. 
Okay, so 30 sayings makes it so there's only 10% as much, or maybe even like 8%, I don't know. 8% as much as the 375. So there's a lot less, but they're meant to be sort of heads of doctrine to help us to capture a way of interpreting the world and to make it so that we can get that wisdom to govern ourselves. There's a lot of stuff there, right? It's collection 2 is 12 and a half chapters. It's a lot more complex than collection 1. The structure of it, the, the, the structure of the literature there is a lot more complex, more subtle, harder to find certain details in, and to see the connections of things. So it's this effort to say, train at this, practice at this, run hard to get wisdom. And so it's this effort to help young men to become intellectually engaged. And Collection 3 tries to capture that into the heads of doctrine. Collection 4 is the further sayings of the wise, and it's sort of like Collection 3, but it's even shorter. And the way it's structured is it deals with matters of public justice and honor. It deals with governing an estate. It deals with governing in public judicature, dealing with disputes and judgment. And so this is now for fathers. You're not just a man. You're the head of an estate. It deals with judges, leaders, men who lead men. And so it's giving to us this way of looking at the world now and saying, all right, you can govern yourself. You've been able to organize the government of yourself into heads of doctrine and to be able to memorize those and apply them by practice. And now you have to lead other people. We're getting into those concerns. And it's going to go and simplify into certain key heads of doctrine. And then in collection five, it's going to elongate out into five chapters. And it's going to deal with, all right, you're a leader, but you're not the leader. Uh, it's sort of the section for courtiers. All right, you're the grand poombah of such and such, report, such and such, reporting directly to the king. You have, you have somebody who's in charge of you, but you're pretty important, and you're trying to rise. You've got people underneath you, but you've still got people over you. And so it's saying, here, think about these things. Here's how you continue to deal with that. Eyes are on you, and you can fall fast, or you can rise fast. It's the, those are the proverbs for the prime of life. Then, Collection 6 continues to be focused on those things, and it's the sayings of Agur, son of Jacob. And then we have a similar thing, the sayings of Lemuel. Those are sort of famous sections, the last two chapters there. But they're each one-chapter sections, and they are kind of key reminders to not forget certain things that really matter. And the one that's the most obvious to you is you're going to go, Collection 7... Proverbs 31, isn't that about women? Isn't that the Proverbs 31 text? Because it's Proverbs 31. I'm pretty sure Proverbs 31 is Proverbs 31. And you'd be right, except that the first few verses of it don't talk about the woman. These are the sayings of Lemuel. That's Solomon. It's another name for Solomon. It's a name given to him by his mother, Bathsheba. And so what we have there is Bathsheba calling to him to remember the importance of a godly wife. And it's tacked on at the end because he didn't. He didn't remember that. He didn't pay attention to that. And so 
It's fascinating that this total failure of a man, Solomon, has Proverbs 31 and the Song of Solomon, but godly love and the godly wife, these texts so closely associated to such a failure. It's like God planned it for some sort of a contrast. He did. His life is a sharp contrast with that counsel. And so, here's what we have with Proverbs. And there's the warnings of the failures. And so we come to the end, and there's those reminders. It, it, it goes out. So that's where we are. We're in this inflection point in the book, in collection four. That's the middle collection between all of the seven, right? You do the math? Four is in the middle of the seven, right? So there we are. We're in the leader section now. We are beginning to deal with leadership. And so it's still for somebody who is learning to become a leader. And so it's sort of a young man and leader father blend point. So 24 verse 23. These things also belong to the wise. That's the title. These things also belong to the wise. Sometimes it's translated as further sayings of the wise. It's three words in Hebrew. So what's this section head about? These things also belong to the wise. It's not a part of the 30 sayings, right? The 30 sayings were numbered for us. These are the 30 sayings of the wise. Here, this one, these are extra sayings. But they're, they're sort of tacked on. The other ones are the self-rule and these are ones that are saying, you're going from self-rule into leadership. Okay, so here are things you need to know in order to lead. So not a part of the 30 sayings to the wise. <coughs> of the wise. But there's still key things for summarization. And like I said, it's the moving from the young man, adult, to the one who has more authority. The 30 sayings focus on self-rule. The other sayings focus on the use of authority in judgment. 23 part B. Here we have a big chunk start. It's how to speak. And so it's going to talk about ruling in judgment and giving honest or right answers. Then we're going to have, at verse 27, how to work. It's going to give you an order for prioritization. It's always a really hard thing. Anybody heard of the Eisenhower matrix? You have a former employee who used to emphasize, he'd say, here's the Eisenhower matrix. There's urgent and important. Okay, those are, the, those are the two sides of the matrices. So you've got important up here, not important down here. You have the urgency here, not urgent, urgent. And so up at this other edge of the quadrant, you'd have urgent and important. If you've got anything in this quadrant, do those things. The urgent and the important. If it's urgent and not important, ignore it. If it's not urgent and not important, ignore it. If it's important but not urgent, do it when you don't have urgent and important. Okay, that's the Eisenhower matrix. This section about how to work is helping you to properly label things for your Eisenhower matrix. 
so you can pick the priorities to work on. Page four says how to speak. This is what verses 28 and 29 are about. It's about how to speak, or how, sorry, how not to speak. Right? So you have how to speak being the first group. This is how not to speak. It talks about false accusations and self-deception. Those are the things to be worried about. And the self-deception is about authority, by the way, that he gets listed out. And it's going to generally apply to self-deception in general, but, but that's the specific one. He's saying don't deceive yourself about your position, about your authority. So then how not to work. It's going to talk about the vigorous sage observing the sleeping sluggard. Okay, so we have the sleeping sluggard is observed, and there's analysis of the sleeping sluggard. So that's what we're going to see. That's, that's what this section is about. So the subject matter is pretty limited. Right judgment and speech. Choosing work to prioritize. These are the key things for ruling well. Can you manage by selecting the right priorities? Can you rule justly? If yes to both, the people will flourish, the people will rejoice, the city will be in splendor, all will be good. And that's what leadership is basically about. Prioritize well, judge justly. So this is the preparation for that. You, think, you see how simple the Bible can take these complex things like leadership. You got how many books? How many, how many oil tankers of ink have been spilled on leadership books? And the Bible's going to go, you know, Prioritize well and judge justly. See you later. This is the basics for leading. So, let's look now at these four major sections of this little collection. You see how short this collection is? It's amazing that this is differentiated out, broken out, as a collection on its own in the middle of the book. So we've been going through a really long section. The, the, the first three collections are all about how do you rule yourself. And now we're getting to the transition about how to rule other people. And so we've gone through almost 24 chapters to get here. The emphasis of the book is on self-rule. Because when you can govern yourself well, then governing other people is relatively simple. And then it tells you how to deal with the sticky situations. So, 24, verse 23b. It is not good to show partiality in judgment. He who says to the wicked, you are righteous, him the people will curse. Nations will abhor him. But those who rebuke the wicked will have delight. And a good blessing will come upon them. All right, so the first lesson there is don't be partial. Partiality is evil. Is that a surprise to anybody? Then why do we do so terribly at it? Why do we struggle with showing partiality, giving favor to undeserving people, and giving what's worse to people who deserve better? Why is this a constant struggle? Why is this struggle for people who are in leadership? Why is this a struggle for people in high levels of leadership? Why is this a struggle in, in ordinary relationships? 
because there are short-term rewards of favor and disfavor and of reputation in groups from how you behave that are different from applying justice well. It is not good to show partiality in judgment. The, the word partiality there is literally, it's not good to recognize faces when you're judging. In other words, don't think about the people. Think about replacing that with, if a person does this, they should do that, which is what the law does. And if a person does this thing, the appropriate response is such and such. Right? Think about the case laws in the Bible. If a man does this, the appropriate punishment is this. We have to learn to do that because it's not comfortable. So here's what people, when, when a church tries to be formal in dealing with discipline, people go, this feels impersonal. That's right. It's designed to be that way. Public justice is designed to be impersonal. Why? Because the problem is not that people stop thinking about each other's humanity. The problem in public justice is that people tend to treat people on the basis of who they are rather than what they've done. Because blood is thicker than water. Right? Those are the kinds of problems that exist. That's human nature. So public judicature, public justice is a matter of trying to depersonalize and maximally move through due process to thinking about the principles. And then, after doing that, bringing it down to the particular to apply to those people. And so you go, <coughs> let's talk about the evidence. Let's see what the witnesses have to say. Let's look at the charge. Let's consider what law is being violated. Right? So you go, here's the law, here's the charge, here's the evidence, here's the appropriate penalty. Those are the things to think about. If you stop thinking about that and start thinking about who is this person, that's where bad decisions get made. It is not good to recognize faces in judgment. He who says to the wicked, and the word wicked there is fine translation, but in the context, the guilty is more appropriate. Because we're talking about court. And it helps you to think about it a little bit better. He who says to the person who's objectively guilty, you are righteous, or you might say justified, or not guilty. He who says to the guilty, you are justified. Him the people will curse Nations will abhor him. Here's something that's fascinating about this text. There's a theological issue that comes up here. God says to the guilty, you are justified. This is a verse that was quoted against Luther, for example. Luther would say, you know, we're sinners, and yet we're also counted as righteous. We're also justified. We are still wicked internally, but we are counted by God as justified. One of the responses was Proverbs chapter 24, verse 24. Easy citation to remember, by the way. He who says to the guilty, you are justified, 
him the people will curse, nations will abhor him. Are you saying, Luther, that God calls those who are guilty justified? I said, yes. Yes. Simultaneously, sinner and saint. And so the doctrine of imputation, of course, deals with the justice of that. We have the guilt of the sinner credited to Christ, Christ making payment and expiating that debt, and you have the righteousness of Christ being imputed or transferred to the believer so that we are counted as righteous. So there's a legal basis for it. It's not contrary to the law. It's in accordance with the law. It is the law system that God has made. Now, the Roman Catholic doctrine of justification says that God justifies us by sanctifying us. He transforms us inwardly so that it's a true judgment when God says, you are just. Now, you have uh, Newman, the, the Anglican who became a Romanist. Uh, Cardinal Newman said, it's a creative declaration. Sort of like, let there be light, let him be just. Okay, that's, that's just another way of saying God, by creative power, changes the person inwardly from wicked to righteous. And so you have, on the basis of internal change, the declaration of righteousness. The Protestant doctrine, the biblical doctrine of justification, is not justification by your inward change being counted as sufficiently righteous. The Protestant doctrine of justification is the doctrine of the imputed righteousness of Christ given as a covering, as a legal credit, a transfer. That legal transfer into your account is the basis for the judgment. Now, this teaching here is not a contradiction with that. This verse does not contradict the doctrine of imputation. He who says to the wicked, or the guilty, you are justified, him the people will curse, nations will abhor him. It is legally true that we are righteous because God is the one who transfers the credit. The Roman Catholic response to that is to say it's a legal fiction. Let's pause on that. Let's camp on that for a second. If it's a legal fiction, does that mean any act of law is a fiction? Because if somebody buys a property from somebody else, it's not like the property, a piece of real estate, transfers from one person's hands. Here is the ground and the house and its walls. I'm going to put it into your hands. What happens is, Ownership changes. It's a legal thing. You might hand a piece of paper. Is that piece of paper a legal fiction? No. It changes ownership. Ownership is imputed from one person to another. It is not a fiction when something is an act of law only. There are realities that come from that. Because you have title to a piece of real estate, you can enjoy its use without violating anybody else's rights. It's not a legal fiction. Because of marriage, acts that would have been fornication become the blessed enjoyment of the marital state. It's not a legal fiction. It's legal. 
The word legal doesn't mean fiction. It means in law. And in law does not mean in physicality. There's a distinction between law and physicality. And to say that we have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us in the law is not a fiction. It would be a legal fiction if it hadn't actually happened in law. But the Bible over and over again teaches us about the fact that Christ died for our sins. That was a legal action. His, law, his death was counted as a death for us. We didn't die physically. It's a legal reality. He died, and it was counted as our death. So the legal element there is not a fiction. It's legal. And so the Roman Catholic objection that our doctrine is a legal fiction is to misunderstand the difference between the law and the physical. It does not require, or the, the metaphysical, it does not require the change of soul to be perfectly righteous in order for us to be justified. If it is, then everybody, everybody is damned. Because nobody, except for Christ, has died with a perfectly righteous inward man. So, the Bible clearly lays out the imputed righteousness of Christ as the basis of our justification. And something in law is not, by definition, fictional. To call this a legal fiction, when you read the mockery of it by Romanists and also by people who might as well be Romanists, you read N.T. Wright, for example, you will find that the way he defines this, he will mock this. You find people redefining it, like Richard Gaffin at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. He, they, they, they try to redefine, they, they obscure, they obfuscate, they, they try to find ways to claim to continue to be reformed, and they will define the doctrine of justification in such a way as to deny imputation as the real thing, because they view it as a legal fiction. It is not a legal fiction. It is a legal reality. But it is in law. And we have the benefit of sanctification. We become more inwardly righteous by degrees, being transformed as we grow in the knowledge of Christ. And when we die and enter the glorified state, we then are transformed fully to being righteous in the inward man. And that is one of the benefits of being counted as righteous. So this is not a critique of God or of the doctrine of justification in Protestantism. This is a law that applies to us. It helps us to think our duty, we don't have the right to put a substitute in the place of another man. God does. And God promised that from Genesis 3 forward, that he would provide a substitute. So this is something that was given early by God, and this is laid out to help us to think about this issue. So, he who says to the wicked, or to the guilty, you are justified, him the people will curse, nations will abhor him. So let's go back down to the practical application for us. If somebody's guilty of something, don't call it something else. Don't, don't call evil good. Don't call good evil. Call a spade a spade. If somebody's guilty, call them guilty. And when you're in judgment, even if it's difficult, it's your job to make that right judgment. 
Think about, for example, times where there's some sort of public pressure to reach a certain verdict. Public justice requires that even in the face of popular uproar, you be willing to make a right judgment. If you think the judgment you're going to make will end in riots, so be it. You make the right judgment. You pronounce the innocent, innocent, and you pronounce the guilty, guilty. And then, if that manifests itself in uproar, you resist it. Pontius Pilate, if he had had the same attitude, would not have executed the Lord of glory. But he did. If he didn't have the wherewithal to say no to peer pressure or to public pressure, then he shouldn't have been in public office. That's true of anybody before they enter public office. Do you find yourself incapable of dealing with the unhappiness of your own family when you make a right call? Do you have a problem with making a right judgment when your friends disagree with you? Do you have a problem with doing things that are unpopular? One of the glories of evangelizing is it helps you to realize that the opinions of other people are out of whack. Because you evangelize and they don't like it. You go, this is the best thing ever. Why don't you like this? What's wrong with your judgmentometer? Why can't you determine the difference between what's good and what's bad? The rejection of the gospel by other people when you evangelize to them is something that helps to steal you against the concern about the opinions of other people and what they think of you. So I would highly encourage you to tell the gospel to other people. It will make you stronger. So he who says to the guilty, you are justified, him the people will curse. Interestingly, even though the people are wicked, when people who are in public justice make wrong judgments, the people start to groan and curse them. Even if they fit popular desires for a time. There are few governments on earth that have been filled with people who try to pander to public opinion more than the American government. And yet, overwhelmingly, people think the government is corrupt. People aren't sitting around going, the government is so full of people who are just doing the right thing. Right? You can talk to socialists, you can talk to anarcho-libertarians, you, can whatever, you talk to people from any part of the spectrum, you're going to find they think the government's full of corrupt people. This is the general attitude, and it's because it is. Because people make judgments where they call righteousness evil, and they call evil righteous, and there's just a general awareness of the insincerity of it all. A part of it is magnified by the fact that you can just watch videos of people saying A and then non-A, like separated by a few years when it was convenient. Sometimes separated by a few weeks when it was convenient. And there's no public acknowledging of, I was wrong then, I repent of that, here's how my understanding changed. When was the last time you heard a politician explain detailed reasoning for why their position changed. 
If there's a big policy change, you'd think detailed, reasoned explanation would be justified. I was wrong. Here's why. Now I'm right. Here's why. Doesn't happen. It's not expected. If somebody did it, it'd be weird. People would be freaking out about it. Why is this guy explaining himself? This seems like an actual effort to explain detailed reasoning of why his position changed. My, my hands are sweating. I don't understand what's happening. The response would be a sense of this is weird. So there's a hatred for this type of insincerity and false judgment, even when the particular decision is popular. Verse 25, but those who convict, this is rebuke, you, you could translate it as convict, and it, it's the convicting by a line of argumentation. So this would apply to a prosecutor. It would also apply to a judge. It would also apply to a witness for the prosecution. Okay? But those who rebuke or convict the wicked will have delight, and a good blessing will come upon them. Now, the line of reasoning here is pretty simple. Justifying the guilty results in curse from the people and hatred from the peoples. Convicting the guilty results in joy, delight, and blessing. Okay, Cursing versus blessing. Other people hating you versus you being happy. Seems simple. Obvious choice. But somehow, we always do the other one. We frequently do the other one. We do the wrong one. And it's because there are deceptive benefits. Now, partiality is evil, and we have to check our emotions. We have people we prefer to not be guilty or to be guilty. We have prejudices, right? We have relationships that are prior, and we have interests that are less noble than the desire for justice. Those things, those things make it so that there's a motive to show partiality. So recognizing faces. In English, uh, in English language, there's a terminology. There's the terminology as being a respecter of persons, okay, as opposed to having the blind application of the law, being a respecter of persons. You may have heard the phrase, the law is no respecter of persons. Right? The, the law is to be applied equally, regardless of person or station. That's a hard-fought principle in the English-speaking world. Wars against kings. The one we talked about this morning, the English Civil War, the, the Bishop's War was an effort to do that. The Magna Carta, the war against King John, was, the Magna Carta was imposed in that way. The Constitution that we have being imposed in that way. The 1689 English Bill of Rights. These are all examples in the English-speaking world. So the English-speaking world is at an interesting effort to fight through that problem. People don't like it. Church courts feel weird to people. Church courts exist so that churches can actually apply discipline. And most churches don't apply discipline because people don't like the impersonal nature of it. And when people try it, they typically fall into partiality. So Presbyterianism uses councils, uses courts to avoid that because the formality is necessary because of our human weakness. Now, 
I would also encourage you, if you are unaccustomed to discipline, when you have new children, when you are figuring out how to apply the law of God in the home, that you have more formal trials for the kids when you're applying discipline. Here's the charge. Here's the uh, evidence. Here's the discipline. Giving an opportunity to answer back. Then applying the discipline. That makes it easier, and it's a form that builds up. And once it's become habituated, it becomes something that you can sort of become slightly less formal at across time. But that's something that helps you. So if you're, when you, you who do not have children yet, remember that and use it as a tool. You who have children and are working through discipline, use that to help to make it easier. And those are the principles there that I want to lay out to make it easier to deal with that. Now, verse 26, he who gives the right answer kisses the lips. The right answer here is the idea of an honest answer, the truth. This connects to the idea of, of giving honest testimony, but it also connects to this. In general conversation, candor and honesty are virtues. Candor and honesty are virtues. Protestant countries are known for being particularly candid. You know, one of the jokes about Englishmen and also about Americans is that we don't really have any small talk and also that we are just, you know, go straight for the thing. We're not subtle. Okay? That's sort of the critique of American businessmen and English businessmen. Also of Dutch businessmen. Protestant countries. That reason, the reason for that is because there's sort of this view that if you talk around a thing or avoid it or don't reveal things, in that culture there's this sense that not being straightforward about a transaction is dishonest. And so there's a concern for that. There are other cultures where you talk about everything else forever and at the end of it you talk quickly about the deal. That is designed to manipulate and to hide key facts. Is that obvious? You talk about everything else, and then at the end, under a rushed scenario, after maximally building the sense of <coughs> awkwardness at not letting something happen, after having invested into the person and spending all the time with them or whatever, that's a manipulation tactic. It's not just a cultural difference. It's an ethical difference, which resulted in a different culture. The Dutch and English and Americans are not more candid just because of the genetics. The candor comes from a rearranging, comes from a rearranging of the way business was done by the law of God being imposed in a society. Candor is an effort to talk about what matters straightforwardly. So we are obligated to be candid with each other. And here's what the Bible says about being candid, straightforward, honest. It's like kissing somebody on the lips. Why is that? Well, kissing someone on the lips is a sign of love. It's a sign of love for the person who's receiving the kiss. It's also a sign of love to other people who look on. You watch somebody else, you then kiss somebody else on the lips, you go, those people are very close, or one of them will soon be dead. <laughs> and so that right there, the fact that kissing somebody on the lips is a sign of closeness, of intimacy, of love. That's what's being said here. Giving a right answer, an honest answer, a straight answer. You can, that word right, you can just translate it as straight. 
actually, by the way. One of the translations. What it's, constant, what it's frequently contrasted with is crooked, false, um, dishonest. So crooked versus straight. The application here is a candid answer. It's honest, it's straightforward. It's true for testimony in court. It's true in general. And so the idea of it being a kiss to the lips, it's a sign of intimacy and love, it's a sign of loyalty. <coughs> if you serve under someone's authority, wives, men who are employees, congregants to a pastor, right? you serve in that way. Giving a candid answer is a kiss to the lips. And here's the, here's the problem. What feels candid to the one speaking can oftentimes feel dishonorable to the one receiving. Candid does not mean devoid of all signs of honor. Right? We hear candid, and here's our American being a little bit to the side too much on our egalitarianism. We hear candid and we hear, so I just need to say the negative thing fast. No. The negative thing can be insert title, depending on the person you're talking to. Honoring title Right, you say, insert honoring title. I think that's not going to work because such and such. Now, you could just say, that's not going to work because such and such. That's candid. But adding honoring titles, adding honoring words, these are things that reduce the sting of candor. So, candor does not mean removing all forms of pleasantness. He who gives a right answer kisses the lips. Now, you think about the kissing on the lips there, again, intimacy, loyalty, love, and pleasant to those who want to receive it. Pleasant to those who want to receive it. This is teaching you, if you're in a position of authority, to accept candid answers as acts of love and honor and loyalty. If you don't do that, guess what you'll be surrounded by? Flatterers. If you are surrounded by flatterers, you will not get honest answers. He who gives a right answer kisses the lips. So, the answer to be right has to be honest and it has to be candid. And so that's the benefit there. So this is, this is how to speak positively. It does not necessarily mean you remove signs of honor. There are times to remove signs of honor. There are playing rebukes that have to be given. And so, for example, if I'm arguing with somebody who shows themselves to be a impenitent heretic, it would be my duty to, at a certain point, be harsh and negative and straightforward. But if I start there, I'm going to make it hard to listen. That's a part of the elder's task. So verse 27, prepare your outside work, make it fit for yourself, 
in the field and afterward build your house. The order of work there is do things that are required in order to make the capital you possess productive, then think about how to use capital for your enjoyment, your comfort, your hospitality, and your generosity. The house there is the place to reside and to enjoy. The field is the place that makes money. Okay, if you haven't bought enough seed to plant in the ground to make the fields productive, don't even think about buying a feast. If you haven't bought a plow, don't think about buying a door. Right? These are the things that are laid out there. Now, one of the other applications of this would be if you can't work enough to provide for yourself, if you can't make enough to provide for yourself, don't get married. Right? Those, are, those are the kinds of things that are laid out there. Now, the response there, sometimes people go, well, you know, I'm not getting married because I'm not making enough yet. Are you working harder to make it happen? Are you using the time you've got to make that happen? Right? Those are the things that you push on. And so the desire for things like, I want a nice house, or I want a wife, are things to push, to make it so that people do more, to get more, so they can provide for a larger estate or household or whatever. So the desire for the blessings of the house pushes us to do more, to make it so we have more productive assets. This is the prioritization of things. So the next, verse 28, do not be a witness against your neighbor without cause, for would you deceive with your lips? The deception there is in multiple forms. Speaking against your neighbor without cause can be speaking falsehood. It can be speaking truth in the wrong place, which is a type of deception. It's a violation of the Ninth Commandment. So you and I have a private dispute, and I just start talking about it from the pulpit. Is that a wrong forum? I am deceiving in a certain sense. What I'm doing there is I'm suggesting that this is okay behavior. What I'm doing is I'm laying something out in public that should be kept private. I'm exposing your nakedness, that kind of thing, right? That would be the sin that's being committed there. It's a violation of the Ninth Commandment, so in that sense it's deception. And it's a bad example, and one of the effects is it also results in just the loss of your own credibility. If you expose things unnecessarily, it makes other people doubt your judgment. And it brings dishonor to the person you're talking about and encourages them to have retribution. If you expose unnecessarily, what you do is you invite retribution of negative things being said about you. So you have to speak the truth in the right forum. If you don't, the effects are going to be that you lose credibility and that retribution is called upon yourself. Verse 29, Do not say, I will do to him just as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. So, this is not only don't speak falsehood, but also don't, don't think lies to yourself. Don't think lies to yourself. If you reinforce lies... You ever had a false narrative that you were telling yourself to make yourself feel better about a situation? Or you, you ever have something you keep telling yourself to justify some wickedness that you're committing? You go, yeah, I'm doing this thing, but they did that. Right? That, you go, well, yeah, but what you're doing, is that right? Is this, is this good or not? 
And so the, the danger of you use something that sounds plausible to deceive yourself. I will do to him just as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. Well, the Bible teaches the principle that we should render to each according to their due. The Bible says, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. So why don't I administer that? Well, what's the, what's the thing that's the lie there? The lie is, not every individual is given the authority to administer vengeance. Vengeance is God's, and God it gives the right of avenging to the magistrate as a minister of wrath, a servant of wrath. And so, if you're not the one with the authority to do it, don't do it. And guess what? You're never empowered to take vengeance for yourself. If there's a criminal action against you, and you're the magistrate, what you need to do is to have somebody else try the case. In a church, if you're an officer, and somebody sins against you, have other people in the church Try the case. That's what you do to avoid that. In English law, what happened is, in matters of treason, for example, <laughs> as opposed to the king just saying, you've committed treason, so I'm going to kill you, you can see how that would be abused. What you have is you have special courts of peers that would try people. So the separation of the action to make it so that it's not the same person <laughs> avenging themselves as a part of an effort in the Protestant world to avoid the idea of avenging yourself, even if you're a magistrate. So don't lie to yourself. Don't take vengeance against others by your own hand. That's a lie. But don't, don't, don't believe any lie. Don't deceive yourself with any lie. That's the idea here. How do you speak? Speak truth to others. Speak truth about others. And speak truth in your own head to yourself. That is the way of sanity, and that is the way of judging rightly. And so we get to the last part, how not to work. Okay, we had before, work, here's the prioritization process. Now, don't be lazy. <coughs> I went by the field of the lazy man, and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding. It's literally devoid of heart. He doesn't have a, he doesn't, he, he doesn't have a mind. <laughs> He's not thinking. And there it was, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. Okay, thorns and, and nettles. Thorns and thistles. Weeds, right? This is the curse out of Genesis 3. The idea that there's, there's work that is fruitless. But he's not even kind of trying to keep them at bay. You have the example in the parable where you have the wheat field and somebody comes in and, and sows tares in, right? And ha, 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 I put weed seeds, right? And, and then leaves. And you go, oh, no. And the, you know, the parable has, we're going to let them both grow up because we can't tell the difference right now. And at the harvest time, we can separate them. We'll have the wheat and we'll use that. Obviously, the harvest will be worse and harder to tend for because there's weeds growing in it. But notice it's a wheat field. The world is a wheat field. It produces believers. It's dominated by wheat, not tares. Well, here, the lazy man, the lazy man, 
his field is covered with thorns and nettles. There's not wheat, there's not useful produce. There's not stuff being made that's worthy. So there's this curse of fruitless labor, or maybe no labor of value is being done. The the lazy man might work hard at the wrong things. He might tire himself out chasing down things, but it's not going to be the things that produce value. And so you, you look and you see there's nothing valuable being made here. There it was, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. You know, we're told in Proverbs 31 about the woman with a vineyard. We're told elsewhere about the righteous man working hard and having a vineyard. Those are the kinds of things. You know what's a lot harder than growing wheat? Vineyards. Grapes are a lot more delicate than wheat. You know why wheat is such a great crop? Because you can have too much water, too little water, too hot, too cold. Wheat's fine. Wheat's fine. It's easy to grow compared to other things. Grapes, not so much. So when we go to the man who's righteous, who's diligent, who works hard, he's got a vineyard. Painstaking, detail, work. The lazy man, he won't even make the wheat grow. And the stone wall's broken down. You get the garden with a wall or vineyard with a stone wall that's maintained. You defend the place. You keep out the, the pests. You keep the foxes out. His wall is broken down. He's not guarding. He's not maintaining. He's not keeping and guarding what has been gained. Right. So he won't do the productive work. He won't deal with the toil. He won't do the stuff to make things grow. He won't prepare the field. He just wants to enjoy what's already there and he won't guard what's already been maintained he lets it break down he lets the productive assets go to waste so on the other side of that obviously the diligent man will take the productive assets and make them work and he'll guard what's already been put there verse 32 when I saw it I considered it well I looked on it and received instruction he's seeing the stripes of another the curse of another and being instructed you see stuff go badly, you go, how can I learn from this? And here's what he saw. He saw that the lazy man went, ah, oh, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Sleep, slumber, and rest. Sleep, slumber, and rest. So shall your poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed man. So your poverty is going to come on like one who walks around. That's the literal language. Walks about. And your need will come upon you like an armed man. The literal language is a man with a shield. Okay? You see armed man, you hear armed man, you might think, maybe you guys got a dagger, knife, maybe a sword, maybe a spear even. No, I'll tell you what. Somebody means business in ancient warfare when they're carrying a shield. Shields are heavy, Shields are big. They make it so it's hard for you to pursue. You're expecting a fight. If you have a shield, you're expecting a fight. In modern times, you might go, is the guy concealed carrying? Is he open carrying? Is he carrying an AR-15? No, he's wearing body armor. He's wearing body armor, and he's got an AR-15, and he's walking down the street. This guy's expecting a fight. That's the idea. 
you, you, you have a guy concealed carry, not a big deal. There's an armed man, okay. Guys wearing body armor and carrying a rifle, that's an armed man. So the eye with a shield is like that. You see somebody walking around in body armor with a rifle. That is what that is the equivalent of. You walk with a shield, you mean business, you're expecting battle. The point there is, if you are lazy, the probability of you avoiding financial disaster is about the probability of somebody with no weapons winning a fight with a guy with a shield. Not happening. You are going to be ambushed. This guy's on the prowl, and he's well-armed. So being lazy and expecting to keep your wealth is like getting into a fight with a well-armed man while you're unarmed. And he has the ambush uptake on you. You're not going to win. So here are the four things that are laid out in those categories. We have how to speak, how to work, versus how not to speak. And how not to work. And those are principles for learning to be able to govern. These are the things that help us to understand what we should prioritize and the idea of ruling justly. So comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights? Okay. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to rule justly as we have authority. I ask that you'd help us to lead well and wisely, to select the right prioritization. I ask that you'd help us to understand how to avoid partiality and also help us to not be so lazy as to avoid judgment. Help us, Father, to not be litigious and to go into fights unnecessarily, but to know how to wisely choose when to deal with disputes. I ask that you'd help us to not make false accusations, to not slander each other, to not deceive ourselves. Help us to not be lazy, but help us to instead work with a right prioritization diligently so that we can enjoy the blessings of well-ordered homes and the fruit of our labor. Help us to have the Psalm 128 type of life from our rightly ordering of things. I pray this in Christ's name.